This episode of the Good Ship Brothership is brought to you by Inner Space. Mm. Outer Space seems just a little bit too big sometimes. You want to downsize. You want to settle down. Inner Space. If you're looking for a deeper hole to jump into, Try inner space. It's all around you. <laughs> Go to http colon double slash uh, innerspace dot net dot q to learn more about how you can get into the space you're already trapped inside. Now on with the show. Actually, <laughs> okay, okay, no, no, no. You can keep it rolling for this, because this is funny. I meant to tell you this beforehand, and I thought we would just wait, and we can cut it out or not, whatever. But this is a, if we keep it in the podcast, I'm going to preface by saying that this is a 100% true story. I work alone. This is like 5 o'clock. I'm getting tired. I meant to tell you guys about this at supper. I'm getting tired. I'm picking through kale, because there's a bunch of old kale. By, so like, by you guys, you mean our family. Our family, yeah. I was like throwing out kale. And out of the corner of my eye, again and again, I'm seeing this, like, flash, like, across the wall. Oh, my and I'm goodness. Like, I thought... I, you're telling me this story right now. I literally already know what the flash across the wall is. What is it? It's the light off your watch. So, um, <laughs> I'm like, is there a bird inside? And I'm, like, looking around. I'm like, no, there's no bird inside. And I'm like, I have to be crazy. So then I'm thinking, this happens no less than, like, five times. I'm like, I can't be crazy. But it only happens directly behind me, just so that I can, like barely see it and once or twice i even kind of like looked back and forth and i like saw it again but then i looked behind me again and i didn't see it so then like i just kind of go like haha whatever must be my imagination keep going and then like this keeps happening over the span of like 15 minutes i'm getting like legitimately a little bit freaked out because i have no idea what it is then i go out to the darker part of our building to dump some cardboard boxes um and I like dump the boxes and then go to turn around. And I'm like, ugh, it's all bright back there. Turns out I had accidentally with my butt turned on the flashlight of my phone, oh my which goodness. was in my back pocket, just enough that in the lit portion of the building, it cast just enough of a shadow that when I would like turn suddenly, right, I'm turning the light and I would just uh-huh. see like a little like, but I couldn't figure out what it was oh until I went goodness. up to the dark part of the building. And I was getting like, honestly, I was like, am I literally insane? Wow. <laughs> I got to tell mom and dad about that too. So you <laughs> just had a flashlight sticking out of your butt. Yeah, but it was like partially were... covered. So it wasn't as bright. Like it wasn't that obvious. It was partially covered by the pocket of my jeans. <laughs> I find you exhausting sometimes. Yeah, me too. Hello, everybody. Uh, this is the Good Ship Brothership. What is, what is that? It is the only arts podcast to cover film music gaming literature and flashlight reviews we should start doing some high-end flashlight reviews the whole tactical flashlight community fascinates me it is fascinating because why what's it there's i understand uh we used to have candle power then that got out of hand because you'd have crappy those crappy lights that were like they'd be like several million candle power so switched over to lumens makes a lot more sense a really powerful flashlight it's still like probably less than a thousand lumens um but, but you, you have to be there's asking brightness yourself, there's battery life build quality you have to be asking yourself why do i need a flashlight that's this bright 
Yeah, I mean, our dad has a pretty good one, but I mean, they make him way more powerful than that, and it's just excessive. We we All make the police use, use these to stun people. That yeah, is, whatever. That's a legit thing. I, I but could not if you're just a random person. Why not? If you're a woman and you live in a rougher okay, part okay. of town or something. But all the people I've known who got them are like dude bros. Oh yeah, 100%. Not, yeah. But, you know, if I think having a tactical flashlight makes a great deal of sense if you're a woman and you live in kind of a rougher area, you can stun somebody at night with the uh, with the light from it. You can clock them with it. It makes way more sense than like a whistle. Yeah. You know, you you can't hit anybody with that whistle and expect them to you know, care. But we make use of the powerful flashlight because we live out in the country. We're shining it around. We're seeing critters, creatures, abominations in the darkness. And, uh, but yeah, I just don't really understand this fascination with like powerful flashlights. So starting episode 36, we're going to be the only uh, uh, flashlight review podcast yeah. run by brothers. Yeah. I bet you there's another podcast out there that reviews, like, everyday carry items. Oh, for sure. Like, little, you know, titanium, titanium stamped knuckle dusters that also look like a a ring, but it's, like, also a goat skull and, like, a, a leather, tiny little leather wallet that cost you $90 because it was artisanally handcrafted by a guy in Seattle. Named Don. The thing is, I like... I don't carry pocket knives so much anymore, but when I was a kid, I was really into pocket knives. Um, I really like nice watches. I appreciate rings, stuff like that. But you put them all together in this totally like haughty and just like weird everyday carries is not for me. Even though I like a lot of the components, but it just is so weird. There's this thing that's like, yeah, these are all the things I put in my pocket. They're really expensive <laughs> and finely crafted. And like, I guess that's cool. But at the end of the day, why? You have one of those tiny little baton things. I just dropped my phone and it fell on the theme music. Did you do that on purpose? No. Oh. <laughs> Not at all. Okay. <laughs> we better keep moving yeah, on. Jason, okay. like what have you been what have you been listening to, ingesting and playing, whatever reading you don't read, I'm, but I need to, I want to do a post about this on our Instagram too. Um, I'm still struggling with the fact that at least 75% of the time I like, excuse me, that I get in my car to go somewhere and I'm listening to music. I just want to listen to Bahamas. I <laughs> oscillate between Bahamas' AFI, bar chords, and earth tones. And I, I probably listen to Bahamas on average 20, 30 minutes a day, like every day still months later. I listen to it all the time. Um, I'm still listening to the Slackers. I've listened a bit to one of their old albums, but not enough to report. Um, like I said that I may do in the future. Um, what else have I been doing that's interesting? I finished Half-Life 2. Um, we're not going to do a full review of it here, probably not. Uh, did I say that really weird? I don't know, whatever. No? Um, I, well, I, I did. So. My brain just did a meltdown. I was like, what are you saying? You weren't talking about Ansel Adams, so you're probably no. safe. Ansel Adams. Um, that's not how you said it. Finished Half-Life 2. The verdict is it's very good. But I do think that it's been overhyped in the years um, without a successor. Started this game called Wolfenstein, which is a alternate timeline first-person shooter. It takes place in, I think, 1960. The backstory is that the Nazis have won World War II. They've developed all this crazy steampunk technology, um, like cyborgs and, and 
cyborg dogs and all this crazy steampunk stuff. Really cool. And I've actually been really surprised by how much I'm enjoying it. It's like 50% serious, 30% camp, 20% funny. It's kind of like a cool combination you don't see very often. Um, And sometimes it kind of freaks you out and really puts you on edge. But then, like I was telling you, you go to exit the game and it's like escape the carnage is what it says. And your two options are like uh, exit and be a man, go back to the game, or like leave and it says be a weenie. So I'm like, (laughs) stuff like that. I'm like, I appreciate that, you know? I want a little bit of levity in my it's, games. It sounds kind of like the uh, that kind of tonal profile they have is similar to Metal Gear, but maybe without the uh, cast of incredibly memorable characters. It's not as wacky as Metal Gear at yeah. all. Metal Gear is just so like, now we're doing what? Yeah. Like all the time, especially towards the end of Metal Gear Solid 2 gets really trippy. Yeah. Um, all that like the guys breaking the fourth wall like you've been playing this video game for too long and stuff yep. it's not it, it's not like that yet i anyways. think i played through that one is uh, that with the dead man the one boss who's who's a, a dead man and he's in a river yeah i think so i don't really remember i think that that's the one that's a great game yeah all the metal gear games are awesome but that's been the main uh main stuff for me i haven't really been i haven't really watched any new films i don't think um and for books i stalled out on heart of darkness i picked it up again this week and read through a bunch more of it hopefully i'll get that finished i really (laughs) here's my problem i'm so stubborn when i read a book that's like you read it and it's so beautiful but after a couple pages it's so difficult to read that it just dries you out and i feel like my attention span has really atrophied yep That'll that happen. it's one thing if it's like uh what did i read before that i read a pulpier book before that got through it easy quickly oh it's fearing loathing in las vegas yeah. um got through quickly easily pulpy. but compared to heart of darkness oh yeah yeah heart of darkness is like this pound cake dense it's like trying to gnaw through steel it's beautiful but it's fear and loathing it's a is tough read. the language is much more plainly presented oh sure yeah um but after that, I'm not sure what I'm going to read next. A uh, friend of mine, a friend of the show, Grace, has told me that she really does like Michael Crichton. And I bought that book of his... I don't think it's pronounced Crichton? like Crichton? It's, Crichton? Yeah, Crichton? I think it's a hard eye. Whatever, you guys know what I mean. He's a very famous author. He, he wrote Jurassic Park. Yeah. And which I was a up, novel. In case I you picked up know. one of his books probably like six, eight months ago and haven't read it yet because I'm a poo. So I might read that after I finish Heart of Darkness. I'm not sure. What about you? Um, I am currently playing... What's that video game you were playing with the samurai and stuff? Muramasa. Muramasa Rebirth. Really enjoying that. <laughs> so really good. fun. So much fun. Honestly, um, I'm... I've dipped my toe in the game, pretty much. I'm in the first timeline, and I haven't even reached my first objective. And I can honestly say that I'm already having more fun than I did with Odin Sphere. Which is interesting. I have not played Odin Sphere yet, but it is the critically more... Uh, renowned game compared to Muramasa. took itself so seriously, but the plot was so wafer thin that uh, I just really struggled to to uh, engage with any of the characters. And when the game is kind of leaning on that character engagement, mm-hmm. it it does damage the game. Now the combat physics and mechanics and stuff were all really really good for Odin Sphere. Muramasa just has that Kurosawa light 
feel and i mean that in a great way that i find so appealing where the kind of the art direction and the storytelling are presented similar to like a kurosawa movie but it doesn't try and compete on the same level because it's no. like a 2d video game so it's like a it's like a kurosawa light the, and i love that the plot has ele- like strong elements of camp yes oh yeah but it it seems kind of knowing in an indefinable way, whereas the Odin Sphere one does not. Mm-hmm. It really wants to tug at your heartstrings with this like family drama mm-hmm. in the middle of the whole thing, and it just didn't. Anyway, uh, and I am reading a bunch of books simultaneously. I have started Red Wolf, Black Panther. I believe that's what it's called. Yeah, or Black Panther, Red Wolf, one of the. One of the two, which is a new a new novel. It's the like I think this is the first time I'm reading something that's current, like as it came out, which is kind of Flavia Deleuze books I keep up with. That's for sure. Yeah, that's true, but maybe literary fiction. Yeah, I guess more so. And it's very interesting. It's very very dark and like graphic and weird. And it's this kind of dark fantasy story set in folkloric. Uh, like ancient African beliefs with these gods and strange supernatural occurrences and it's told in a very do you remember that book that we have of King Arthur stories yeah. by Roger Lansing Green or yeah. Lancelin Lancelian. and yeah, uh, it's but the language in which they're told is very sparse and <laughs> not one. almost not at all prosaic uh-huh. you know it's just very descriptive and straightforward and the writing in this kind of reminds me of that a little bit so we'll see if that grates with me after a while or not and uh i guess that's primarily what i'm reading i finished reading the crying of lot 49 by thomas pynchon and i think it was like the most surgically well executed bunch of garbage i've ever read in my entire life yeah the i got to the end of it and went what why like there are f- really funny characters in it and it's got that classic pinchin like surreal weirdness with it but when you're just reading on and on and on about you know essentially it's a um what do you call those things crazy people believe in i don't know superstition conspiracy conspiracy it's basically a conspiracy theory story and the conspiracy theory like goes into agonizing detail in the footnotes of a script for a fictional play and why they might have been included or excluded and the oh. and the um like medieval history of these warring postal services which i can only assume is meant to be satirical but it was one of those things where you kind of just close your eyes and read through it. <laughs> I'm telling you right now, as time goes on, especially over the last year, I've become less artsy in my leanings. And I'm starting to be towards the point where I'm just like, at a certain point, the writing might be fantastic. You might have a brilliant vision. But if it's not enjoyable, is it good? Yeah, just tell me a damn story. Yeah, I'm like, like... if it's... That's that's where I was at with some of the films we've read and some of the books I've tried to read. It's like if you're not, not a lot. Like I'm talking Field in England. Yes. If you no, didn't... I know. I I rolled my eyes because okay. you said some of the films okay. we've read. Oh, sorry. 
Um, but I am really getting to a point where I feel like a couple years ago I used to like watch it and then like try and find it, try and like unlock the value inside. And now if I watch it and I didn't really enjoy it, I'm just like, I don't think that's good. <laughs> and I disagree. That... I think that you can produce equally excellent works that are challenging or accessible. And I think that it's up to you how much, like take Dark Souls, for example. If you apply that logic to Dark Souls 1 as a game, then Dark Souls 1 doesn't really stand because, oh, you know, what's... I mean, it, from a story perspective, the gameplay still holds up. But, you know, oh, why is this all... Why should I try and figure out what's going on and that sort of thing? I guess I should rephrase that because what I mean more so is, like, did that enrich my life somehow? Because you can have really great works of art that aren't enjoyable, like that aren't fun, you know? But you still get something out of it, like the road. It, the road is not fun, but the road is phenomenal. But I guess I'm more talking about something that's um... like where where does 2001: A Space Odyssey fall on that index then? Because I find it I have very really mixed feelings about that movie. I find it really <laughs> enriching from an artistic perspective, but it is just heavily flawed. And at the end of the day, not really a fun watch. Not at times it is, but not. Yeah. Uh... I guess that's why this podcast exists, because it's not that simple. Because I, I don't think that it's as simple as you mean it. So. No. I, I think that, yeah, anyway, I still I still enjoy the pursuit of art that has some sort of a barrier to your um, immediate enjoyment. I think that it um, gives it kind of a delayed gratification. Yeah, there's that. That can be really special. Too. And also, it's just, again, how the artists choose to present their work. Anyway. So yeah, I've been reading that. I watched The Umbrella Academy on Netflix, which is uh, quite enjoyable. Some some pretty hammy, cheesy acting by certain uh, I certain people. Uh, but I, I think it's mostly worth a watch. There's a lot of twists and turns that are pretty predictable. But yeah, anyway, I did enjoy it. Okay. So this episode has been a actually a very long time in the making. Yeah. Uh, we're going to do kind of a Beatles versus Stones head-to-head here, which will be interesting for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's kind of an age-long, age-old... It's as old as the bands themselves, really. Are you a Beatles person or a Stones It's person? arguably the most classic uh, comparison between two bands that you could make. And and question. Yeah. The most classic... I'd say it's, I'd say it's really the only musical question that's almost become a cultural meme in a way because you can describe people by saying you know they're oh they're more of a beatles person or though they're more of a stones person yeah you know and it's it you hear that in movies oh i'm more of a stones guy you know (laughs) puts on shades and uh and uh and yeah it's 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 an interesting question and neither of us are familiar with the Beatles at all right from the off right from the outset like since we were big children we've both been stones people and I feel like this is partially a conscious decision I made because I was all about like rock roll and leather jackets baby and then it was also partially just because our dad listens to the Rolling Stones and not the Beatles um and so I think having a gateway into the Rolling Stones like that is just just kind of gives it an inherent leg up and it's what you start listening to, so it's what you keep listening to, right? And 
I just ha- I've had this kind of like <sighs> largely unfounded resentment of That's the what Beatles. I was gonna say too <laughs> for the entirety of my musical cognizance really and since i started being enthusiastic about music their their music and their image is much more for the most part squeaky clean and their music is whimsical and fun and cheery and or you know so that was their perception yeah that's their persona kind of and the stones are way more rock and roll leather jackets motorcycles that sort of thing which was definitely more of my camp and i think as i grew more into being conscious about like the music that i listened to it's the same thing with um (laughs) stay with me here it's the same thing with marvel and rick and morty and harry potter i'm so tired of every (laughs) mainstream person who enjoys you know movies tv books music whatever telling me like oh i love the beatles i like old music have you watched captain america yeah exactly It's just this ubiquitous thing that eventually you grow to resent because you view it as as uh, something that people like something that softcore music fans say. Yeah, and the the Beatles, the proliferation of their popularity is insane. The far-reaching power of their music, even to people our age, is like unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And how often do you find? You know, casual music fans our age who like the Stones. Yeah, like it's very seldom, Um, but everybody listens to the Beatles almost in some capacity. And as we like within the last couple of years, I would say probably starting a couple years out, I have had this nagging feeling that maybe I've been wrong to just talk smack about the Beatles my entire life because I was just talking out my butt because I just assumed that I didn't like them. Um, and so I think not only for this podcast, but for my musical development, maybe not this episode, but this comparison is a long time coming and it's long overdue and I'm interested to see what we think of it. So should we, uh, play the theme music and then flip the puppet yes. and get into it? Oh, we already introed the podcast, but we didn't play the theme music. We can, I, I want to do another music. Take. I think that my, okay. my intro was a little scattered. Yeah. 22 and a half minutes in. Ready? Dude, this is how this show goes. We we uh, we always say we're going to tighten it up and then it never happens. We would have switched this to you a got, flashlight. You got a little something right here. We would have switched this to a flip. flashlight. No, mirror right here. We would have switched this to a flashlight dude, review show. Dude, mirror flipped, dude. <laughs> like right here? No! <laughs> Over here? Yeah, okay. yeah, but here. Okay, the next one? No, this one? here, yes. Okay. I'm trying to show Jason. He's got something stuck in his freaking teeth. It? Yes, okay. oh, thank goodness. We would have switched this to a flashlight review show a long time ago if we cared about listenership. Yeah. We know y'all are passionate about lumens. <laughs> I know. We gotta get the intro down to under 10 minutes. But we did just... That was part of the episode. Yeah. You're aboard the Good Ship Brothership. It's the only arts podcast that covers film, music, gaming, literature, and flashlight, tactical flashlight reviews. I'm Grant, and this is Jason. Good evening. We do this so that you can differentiate our voices, but I realize we sound almost identical. Ah, yeah. Even our aunt and uncle were staying with us for the past few days. They left this morning, and uh, my aunt was asking, you know, she got up to make coffee. Does anyone else want coffee? And I'm like, I will. And she's like, who said that? Yeah. It's me. Like, it's, it's, we sound so similar, and... That really is probably 
the Achilles heel of this podcast. But when I listen to our shows, to me, it's night and day. It's not even close, like not even remotely, but I've been told again and again that we sound similar, so... We sound very similar. Next like, episode, we'll put on name tags. <laughs> I love that idea. Anyway, we're you know, we, today we're talking about... This is, this is how we curated this episode, by the way, for those who want to know. Um, I just went to Google. I searched the Rolling Stones, I searched the Beatles, and then I sifted their discographies, which you can do on desktop by most popular to least popular. Now, before we get into it, we had a total snafu. I gave Jason the wrong album to listen to. So Jason spent like spent the last week two, two weeks listening to Exile on Main Street. Listening to Exile on Main Street when I was listening to Sticky Fingers. Now, we have clarified and as you can see here Jason I'll show you that's the wrong thing as you can see here eggs sticky fingers is in fact the stones most popular album according to exile google. on main street google. however they figured it yeah, out yeah but we just went with google cuz yeah, yeah. i mean it's, it's google fair. google knows all and uh, and also it's just it's a simple metric, right? Yeah, like, certainly. It's easy for us to go by. And the the Beatles' most popular album, according to Google, was Abbey Road. So I think it's obvious which direction the puppet will face for each act. Yeah. Correct. Well, I would say the Beatles would be face up. Yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, okay, face Beatles up. Face Let up me lead this one, because you should lead those Stones one, considering I only listened to it recently. But I do also want to hear your opinions on of Exile course. on Main Street. Uh, I didn't really write them down. No? A lot of... No. Not, I mean, it's not what, what we're reviewing. Uh, yeah, but I just want to know. Like, thumbs up, okay. thumbs down, sideways, thumb. Um, Three hairy thumbs up. Remember that? No. Really? Really. Dude, let, hold on. Let me just... Three hairy thumbs up? That means literally nothing to me. He's typing it into his computer. Um, it will in a second. YTV. We did watch. We watched. Uh, this some, is this some is Nickelode- like literally just a. Was a YTV? For... YTV and Nickelodeon were they uh, competing networks? Um, or... I'm not. Sh- no, Nick. Well, I don't know because YTV is Canadian. Like Four distinctly... kids competed with Nickelodeon. That I remember. Um, oh my goodness! Why won't this? It's. it's... This is not the most important thing. Yeah, I know. Ever, but three hairy thumbs up. Oh yeah, yeah I remember. It's just that. like a bumper from uh, from YTV when this purple hand comes out and uh, goes like, okay. and three thumbs comes come out of it and it goes three hairy thumbs up. I guess it was just really good. Yeah, I don't know. Um, okay. Sorry. So, <laughs> I already gave the whole summary about how I was a I was a overly vocal beaters beetle. You're a Beatles beater. I was a Beatles beater. I beat the Beatles. Um, until kind of more recently, I kind of quieted down on that because I'm like, ugh, maybe I'm horribly wrong. I'm gonna look back and be like, what have I done? Fast forward to 2018, maybe summer 2018, I started listening to the Lemon Twigs. <laughs> I'm like, these guys are really awesome. I was thoroughly impressed. They flew too close to the sun. They got a little too weird sometimes, but overall, I felt like they were really capable. Really interested to see where they go. They have this cool sound that's like an amalgamation of. All of these 70 band, 70s bands mixed with a little something of their own, enough to keep it interesting. Um, fast forward to 2019, give me another six or nine months up until a couple weeks ago. 
I start to listen to Abbey Road, um, and I came home one day and I said to Grant, like, wow, the Beatles must have listened to a lot of Lemon Twigs before they made Abbey Road, let me tell you that. <laughs> which is a phenomenal um, statement. Yeah, which is a, yeah. Because I, the, it's a joke because the Lemon Twigs are a very current band. How old are they? Like 20 and 18. Yeah, they're incredibly, incredibly young, very skilled musicians Whew. who sound incredibly like the Beatles. Arguably a lot more skilled than the Beatles. Um, what? Yeah. Okay. I said it. Wow, okay. So, listening to Abbey Road, it does bear way more resemblance to the Lemon Twigs than I thought. Not to the point where it really makes me think less of the Lemon Twigs, but it was way more of an entry point than I expected. Because I was like, I immediately yeah. kind of like what I'm hearing, yep. because it reminds me of another band that I have a great deal of respect for. Um, that said... The first thing that really hit me about this album and has kind of stuck with me to get into the positives and negatives is the production value is just superb. Like, there are very few albums made before, let's say, 1980. Oh, we should say, and we forgot to do the uh, Wikipedia Wikipedia entry, entry, but we'll do that as a bumper between our two segments. We should say... The uh, years that these albums were put out, just for a bit of context. This was 1969, I think, Abbey yes. Road. And... released September 1969, and uh, Sticky Fingers was released in 71, just right. two years later. Okay. So Abbey Road, having been released in 1969, I would say that there were precious few albums released before, I'll say 1980, pick a year, that sound as good or better. It's actually pretty amazing, I think. The brightness... The clarity of the mix, the fact that you're able to hear all the instruments separated and yet still um, still together, if that makes sense, is I think really an accomplishment and certainly not something that you hear from many 70s albums. I should flag this up too. The, the mixes that we're listening to, for those of you who actually mm-hmm. care, the Stones album was remastered. It says maybe in 2009, we'll just say it says copyright 2009 at the bottom of this uh of sticky fingers on spotify and i believe abbey road was remastered in 2010 yeah Uh, let me just make sure and i think that the original oh 2009 as well and i think that the original beatles mixes for like loads of their stuff they had this really weird stereo mix Mm -hmm. where they would put the drums in one side Mm mm-hmm and I don't like. I guess it was cutting edge or cool at the time, but, but they fixed people that. People hate it now. Yeah, it's like uh, the cars moving in stereo. The only th- cool thing about that song is that it's like pan left. Yeah. Now guess what? We're gonna pan, pan right. right. Yeah. Um. Wow, we got off track really quickly. No, no. I mean that's I guess relevant that is on information yeah, about yeah. the production. Of the that's album. true. All that to say, I was um, just astonished that an album from '69 can sound this good. I would say that only some albums like. Maybe some, like, Yes from that time, and some Led Zeppelin, and stuff like that is produced on par. Marky Moon. Um, Marky Moon, that's true. A couple years later. Yeah, that's true. Um, Another area where I really underestimated the Beatles was tone. And by that, I just mean guitar tone, as well as bass tone. Some of that stuff riffs. Like, the opening riff for Octopus Gardens, which I'm sure, or is it Sigular? Octopus's Garden. Octopus, yeah just is such a sweet sparkling tone like they'll kind of like i guess you classify it as like lightly overdriven yeah i don't know if they would have an overdrive pedal or if their amps are just cranked or whatever but just sounds phenomenal like yeah 
I would argue probably better tone than I heard anywhere on the Stones album. Yeah. Um, and the Stones had some pretty tasty tones. Yep. I think it fell short a little bit. The one area where the album really shows its age uh, sonically, I think, is the drums are pretty like relatively tinny compared to a modern mix. Mm-hmm. This year is when Zeppelin released their first studio album too. Just for a little bit yeah. of context, and that's I, that just hit me. I think sixty nine. And I, you hear the drums on that. <laughs> I will still say that I think. Probably Zeppelin 1, for its time, was the best produced album of all time. Like, I think it's better than this, but this has got to be in the conversation as one of the biggest musical achievements of the 60s, production-wise. It's it's fantastic. I have to say, I completely agree. Um, Mm -hmm. Sorry. Especially the cleanliness of the vocal recordings is like... Like, it'll give you chills. If, if, If you're like us, you're into music history and production and that sort of thing... It totally gave me chills. Just how beautiful and clear the vocal perform the recordings were. I would highly encourage you guys flip back and forth between these albums a little bit. It's yeah. amazing how even <laughs> down to the mix, the personas of the bands are carried through. Yeah, the Beatles is like clean and polished and pristine, and the Stones sounds twenty years older. It sounds dirty. The mix just smoked a cigarette. Yeah, and. Just smoked a pack. Yeah, just smoked a pack. And that has its own appeal, too, and we'll get into that. But at the end of the day, just empirically, you got to give that to Abbey Road, certainly. Um, and overall, I really enjoyed the album to get out of the technical and just into the emotional a little bit more. Lately, and this is similar but different to our earlier conversation about accessible art. Lately, I've found myself drawn towards how an album makes me feel more so than the fundamentals. And I think part of that is why I like Bahamas so much. And I mean, you know, those albums are just peerless in a lot of ways. But something like the Lemon Twigs, and this is why I was kind of smirking the other day. You were talking about how much you hate um, Octopus Garden and Maxwell's Silver Hammer. And I kind of like those songs just because they're fun. They make, I'm tired, I've had a long day at work, I'm driving home. They just lift me up. They make me feel good. And lately, I've been pulled more towards things like that, where I'm like, the writing's kind of dopey, kind of weird. There's a lot to dislike. But at the same time, if it makes me feel good, that's kind of enough for me to an extent. I'm not saying these are songs of the century, but it's enough to make me want to go back and listen to it again. My biggest issue with the album, it's not overly long time-wise. It's only 47 minutes, I think, is what yeah. I saw over there. Yeah. But it's 17 tracks. And in the middle, some of those are really short tracks clumped together. I get that. At the end. Yeah, yeah, right. Sorry. But I still think that the album would have been way better if you had cut out, like, aggressively, like, five-plus tracks. I think if you made this a tight album, and I say this about almost every album we review, it would have been better. I'm sorry. It just... It would have been fantastic. Yeah. But some of the later songs... Let me see if I can find them here. Um, I'm going to try and find these ones here. Pull up the track list for me, will you? If you've got it there. Um, yeah, it's like around Sun King. It just really starts to go off the <laughs> That's rails. That's track 10. Yeah, track 10. They're singing... We don't know it's Italian, Spanish, something. And it's just... It loses me. And this is where we talk about that feeling. I listen to Here Comes the Sun. I feel so good about myself because it's kind of cool. Um, it's a little weird, too. 
But then I just, my emotions fall off a cliff and I'm like, what are you guys doing? And it amazes me that the Beatles had so much mainstream acclaim with an album like this just because things like that make it much less accessible to me. Mm-hmm. And I, there's a good chance I'm completely missing the point, quote unquote, but that does detract from the album for me. So accepting that admittedly huge criticism, the fact that probably a quarter of the album should be cut, I really did enjoy it a lot. Um, that's my opinion as like somebody who's been living under a rock from the Beatles music, basically. I'm kind of sad that I didn't listen to it earlier. I was wrong. It's a great album. But, you know, it's not without its flaws. There that's you go. your... Yeah. Um, I'll probably jump in with your review if I think of other of stuff. Of course, so, yeah. You know. All right. So my review of Abbey Road by the Beatles, my my background of the Beatles, as we discussed, was mostly just um, just a simmering kind of loathing Contempt. that I harbored just toward anything that was kind of light and fizzy and frothy and fun. Like, and... Are they a music fan or do they like the Beatles? <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of. And And liking the Beatles does seem like a cop-out in terms of getting yourself some retro-fueled validity to yes, your... I'm not a music fan. ...to your music views. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you know, and it, it, it the phrase, I really like the Beatles, is normally uttered uh, or can often be uttered by a clueless H&M shopping... It's up there with Nirvana. ...teenager wearing a Nirvana logo yeah. t-shirt, even though they only know smells like teen spirit and uh, lithium. Yeah. But... Uh, Abbey Road, uh, listening listening to my first Beatles album, like it, actually listening, was an interesting experience. It was not at all what I thought that I was in for. It was it was both better and and then confirmed some of my biases as well. But it would be up there with the most hot and cold albums I've ever heard. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Come together, uh, something. Oh, darling, here comes the sun. That's basically my standout track list, and, by the way. <laughs> and uh, Golden Slumbers, yeah, are all like absolutely gorgeous and very well put together songs. And each on their own would be enough to elevate a bad album to a decent one. Here comes the sun, just on its own is just one of the most beautiful like uplifting songs that's ever been written and so is golden slumbers yeah it's it's to me here comes the sun i think it's just because i was familiar with it already yeah it's just like it's an iconic it's just so good yes it's iconic and it is iconic for a reason i i don't know what my favorite track would be uh, something is really, uh-huh. really good. And Oh Darling is such a sweet, yeah. like, it's got a little swing, it's got yeah. a little groove, it's awesome. Yeah. It's, Oh Darling is nothing earth-shattering in terms of the musicality behind it mm-hmm. or anything. I think that Come Together is actually, like, a, a truly, truly phenomenal song. And the kind of song that I would aspire to write. Just in terms of the catchiness, the weirdness of it and the musicality of it it's it's five stars on everything from me uh, and that drum performance by Ringo Starr is really great with the Tom Phil drum beat uh, mm-hmm. throughout the song uh, but I've just listed all these great tracks but 
<laughs> this is supposed to be the Beatles' best album or their most popular. And it's, I mean, Abbey Road is certainly bandied about. It's It probably is, just for my cognizance, one of those Beatles albums that people mention the most. And it also has Maxwell's Silver Hammer, Octopus's Garden, yeah. because Sun King. My jam. Sun King on it. And for because me, it gets really draggy. Those songs are almost enough to cancel out the previous four I listed entirely in terms of boying the album up. Maxwell's Silver Hammer is so irritating. They uh, there's kind of makes me. I'm, it's kind there's, of fun. There's some division among the band as to how much they hate it. Let me read some of this. Maxwell's Silver Hammer, McCartney's first song on the album, was per- first performed by the Beatles during the Let It Be sessions, uh, as it can be seen in the film. He, that's McCartney, wrote the song after the group's trip to India and wanted to record it for the White Album, but it was rejected by the others as too complicated, which it's not. The recording was fraught with tension between band members as McCartney annoyed the others by insisting on a perfect performance. The track was the first Lennon was invited to work on following his car accident, which is part of the insane production history of this album. But he hated it and declined to do so. According to engineer Jeff Emmerich, Lennon said it was, quote, more of Paul's granny music, unquote, and left the session. (laughs) (laughs) He spent the next two weeks with Ono, Yoko Ono, and did not return to the studio until the backing track for Come Together was laid down. Harrison was also tired of the song, adding, quote, we had to play it over and over again until Paul liked it. It was a real drag. Starr was more sympathetic to the song. Quote, it was granny music, he admitted. (laughs) (laughs) But we needed stuff like that on our album so other people would listen to it. Uh, And I totally agree. It's granny music. I find it it really tiring. There's this clanging sound, which I, I guess is supposed to emulate the eponymous hammer in the chorus that just really almost pierces my eyeballs. I will admit this. It is an overwhelmingly gimmicky song. And although I still think that... I won't go back and say that I didn't enjoy it because it's kind of fun. But the first two, three times, I'm like, yeah, Maxwell's Silver Hammer. And then when I'm listening to the album more, I'm like, I can skip it this time. It's, It's exactly... I used to always deride the Beatles as being Sesame Street on acid. Which would actually be terrifying and maybe interesting but <laughs> that's the Beatles, for our, you know, like 50th anniversary yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the beatles beatles always kind of struck me as this kind of sing-songy you know and bang bang maxwell silver hammer came down on his head do 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 is exactly that it's um, very bad lemon twigsy octopus's garden <laughs> while there's some good instrumentation in it i absolutely can't deny that the instrumentation is pristine on it the bubbles do kill me that's my the least bubbles, favorite part that's there's my... a bubbling sound effect that's like are you serious and you know i want to be in an octopus's garden in the shade you know with you is just so stupid that doesn't and bother for, me as much for me on a great album there's very little room for gimmicks you know like silver hammer and bubbling sound effects uh because is just so tiring as a yes. song it, and it this is the one i believe that stretches on for uh oh no no which i can't why did i hate this song it's like the it's really draggy is that the one that opens with a harpsichord i don't know I find like, out. that's find the one. Out. only one way to find out okay we have to stop talking though because 
we come through this mic. We're going to play it really quietly. Please don't copyright strike us Apple Music. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's just this, yeah. It's like this dirge. It sounds like something that was cut from Tranquility Base Hotel and Casino. Yeah. Um, anyway. Should, do you need to turn that down again? Yeah, I should. Thank you. And uh, Sun King is just insufferable. It's this, yes. like, totally drug-addled return to Here Comes the Sun that, like, I don't want to say it craps on Here Comes the Sun, but if they had left it out, I would have liked Here Comes the Sun more, and it's I love kind Here of Comes defamatory. the Sun. <laughs> yeah, very. The second side of this album, which would be a, just the second half, for those of you who don't understand LP format. That sounded more condescending. Than yeah, that sounded really... But for but saying the second side is also a really hipster trash yeah, kind okay. of thing to do. But anyway... The latter half the, of the album... The latter half of the album is a medley of, like, kind of demos or song ideas ranging from two and a half to, like, one minute. Uh-huh. It has some very decent moments in terms of the songs that are found there. But they never last as long as they should. The good songs never do. And then you get something like Sun King in there and you're like, what is this? And it just seems like a really bad way to end an album with a medley of little snippets. I was saying this to Hannah, my girlfriend over the home, over the phone, over the home. Oh my goodness. Um, when you see a band live, you want them to end with a fantastic, with a great song. And it's like that on an album too. Like when, my, I think probably my high watermark for album closers is Vander Lyle Cry Baby Geeks by The National, oh. which is like a song so good it makes you just want to start the album over. And again. for a band who really knows how to screw up a closer, yeah, that's a phenomenal song. Yeah, man, how hot and cold. Anyway, for the record, The National is one, maybe my favorite band of all time, but a lot of times their closing tracks really disappointing the national just does that thing where their second last track is the perfect close yes and it's like again, you guys just and again and again i think three albums yeah that's three three again yeah yeah that's true uh it, yeah and then i just put at the end golden slumbers though why do they not make that a full song instead of freaking maxwell's silver hammer <laughs> golden slumbers is absolutely gorgeous absolutely gorgeous also octopus's garden was the only song on the album written and sung by ringo Starr, so that might have something to do with it but anyway really yep they they had a tradition i guess of allowing ringo to front one song per album huh yeah so that was octopus's garden on this this interesting so yeah that's that's my opinion of of abbey road it was it was a lot prog rockier than i thought Mm -hmm. the production is matchless like we were saying the recordings are insanely pristine and clean and that in and of itself shows an incredible dedication and skill by the beatles in terms of in terms of the recording prowess and the guitar tones and everything are like absolutely just immaculate. so much better than i thought they'd delicious be. yeah, yeah. It, it, totally totally it, it is a very ageless sounding album except for the drums which are yeah rather muffled and kind of but i'll get to that later i've actually typed up a list of comparisons between the two mm. uh i have comparisons for production for the album covers for the songwriting and for the performances so yeah uh and let me just should i quickly just read the encapsulation of abbey road on wikipedia just to give people if a bit of like a, to, sure. I, we really it i think it makes it big difference 
when we read these at the beginning, but you know, better late Such than ever. Such is life. Uh, okay, Abbey Road is the 11th studio album by English rock band The Beatles, released on the 26th of September. I know somebody with that birthday. I can't remember who. 26th of September, 1969, by Apple Records. The recording sessions for the album were the last in which all four Beatles participated, although Let It Be was the final album the Beatles completed before the band's dissolution, in case that wasn't confusing enough, in April 1970. Most of the album had been recorded before the Abbey Road sessions began. A two-sided hit single from the album, Something, backed with Come Together, There's there's a pair of songs to release, released in October, topped the Billboard chart. Abbey Road is a rock album that incorporates genres such as Blues, pop, and progressive rock makes prominent use of the Moog or Moog synthesizer and the Leslie speaker. Side 2 contains a melody of song fragments edited, edited together to form a single piece. The album was recorded amid a more enjoyable atmosphere than the, let it, than the Get Back slash Let It Be sessions earlier in the year, but there were still frequent disagreements within the band. John Lennon had privately left the group by the time the album was released, and McCartney publicly quit the following year. Although Abbey Road was an immediate commercial success and reached the number one in the UK and US, it initially received mixed reviews, some critics describing its music as inauthentic and bemoaning the production's artificial effects. <laughs> huh. I'd, I'd say like the bubbling and stuff. Yeah. Over time, the album became viewed as among the Beatles' best, and many critics have ranked it as one of the greatest albums of all time. It's not. It's not. In particular, George Harrison's contribution, Something, and Here Comes the Sun, are considered to be among the best songs he wrote for the group. Yeah, I don't doubt that. The album's cover, which features the four band members walking across a zebra crossing outside Abbey Road Studios, has become one of the most famous and imitated images in the history of popular music, and I'd say of history in general. You have to imagine that almost everybody would know what that is if you showed it to them. Oh, absolutely. They'd for sure know which band it is. Yeah. Okay. Now we move on to the Gabber Jabber. <laughs> I can't. I can never remember which. No, this is not it. Okay. It was way chiller than that. Ready? Ooh. Wait. Ready? Nope. It's so much more sultry. <laughs> You're listening to the Gabber Jabber. The Gabber Jabber. This is the part of the show where we dive deeply down the throat of Canadian Netflix and rip out a glistening movie for you to enjoy. It's shimmering. I feel kind of bad about this segment because we actually do have a pretty big contingent of American fans. But I mean, they're good shows. I know. They're... Find them somewhere else. Fine. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, we do have lots of good stuff on Canadian Netflix at the moment. Um, I, I have been watching The Dark Knight Rises so good. here and there, and I was shocked at the amount of stuff I had never picked up on. Yeah? Like, in terms of just the basic plot, like, I was, I've been kind of alarmed by it. We've got all the Indiana Jones There's a Van Helsing show on Netflix? Yeah. it's Dude, it's been on there for, like, probably two years. I've just never seen it. Let me turn this down a bit more. This is a little abrasive. Um, okay, Dang. but... Have we recommended this? We haven't reviewed We've this. We've reviewed it, and literally last episode, you went, oh, I know what I'm going to review, and I went, or I know what I'm going to recommend, and I said, we've reviewed that, and you're like, what? We reviewed it? 
Yes, we reviewed Nightcrawler. Dude, I have no memory of that. Hey, uh, scroll up because have we talked about La La Land? Because it's on Netflix now. Uh, we we have not. Yeah. I haven't even seen it. Let's watch it together, like this week. Okay, oh. I okay. don't like I, should, I don't I like musicals. Myself. I don't I like musicals, myself. guys. Let me be honest with you. I don't know if I've ever finished more than three musicals. I watched La La Land, and pretty much purely off the uh, double whammy of Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone's beauty, as well as the the phenomenal cinematography and the production, which really is honestly like amazing. I think that it's a phenomenal movie. Whether you like musicals or not, if you don't like musicals, if you're like me. Um, and you're too, you're all like, oh, it's not for me. You might be a little bit embarrassed to sit down and watch it. Get yourself some Kleenexes and get yourself a pair of glasses because I'm telling you, you're going to like what you see. Glasses? Yeah, I don't know. Just to help you see better. Seriously though, that's my pick because it's super good. My pick, I can't remember if I've picked this before. I feel like I might Mm, have. I don't know. But I'm just going to say Schindler's List. Because Three hours, fifteen minutes. Holy although shows. it's incredibly long, it uh, uh, it might just have the most gut wrenching emotional climax of any movie I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, it's uh, yeah, I mean, it's one of those movies that gets tossed around a lot in like best movies of all time lists and that sort of thing, and I think that it's sheer runtime and how serious it seems and the fact that it's in black and white although it's not an old movie um i think those are all deterrents for a lot of people but please honestly give it a shot clear clear an evening for yourself and sit down and watch it because the plot is not hard to follow it's incredibly powerful and uh and yeah very if if you're dried eyed at the end of it i'll be surprised because i was literally like loudly sobbing when I watch the end of this movie, and honest, and if I think about it, I could well up again. And I can't really think of another movie that's had that effect on me, like just out and out bawling. Yeah. Anyway, we move now into the second half of this show at this an better, hour. This I better not so be sorry. literally the second half. Holy cow! This is gonna be like how the second half of half a tank of gas in your car is really more like a quarter. This is like the second half of Abbey Road, where it's just a bunch of quick snippets. Okay, let's go. <laughs> Sticky Fingers by by um, the Rolling Stones. Sticky Fingers is the ninth British and eleventh. Wait, wait, wait. For other uses, uh, Sticky Fingers dis- disambiguation. What other uses are there? You probably don't want to know. Uh. Also Member of the hip hop group Onyx, a film, a band, two different films. Who two cares? Okay, irrelevant. Sticky Fingers is the ninth British and eleventh American studio album by the English rock band The Rolling Stones, released in April 1971. It is the band's first album of the decade and the first release of the band's new label, Rolling Stones Records, after having been contracted since 1963 with Decca Records in the UK and London Records in the US, which is ironic. It is also Mick Taylor's first full-length appearance of a, in a Rolling Stones album, and the first Rolling Stones album to not feature any contributions from guitarist and founder Brian Jones, which is interesting. I didn't know that he was contributing for that long. I know he stopped touring like really early on in their mm-hmm. career. Sticky Fingers is considered one of the Rolling Stones' best albums. It achieved triple platinum certification in the U.S. with songs such as the chart-topping Brown Sugar 
and the country ballad Dead Flowers, Wild Horses, Can't You Hear Me Knocking, and Moonlight Mile. The original cover artwork conceived by Andy Warhol and photo photographed and designed by members of his art collective, The Factory, was highly innovative, showing a sexually suggestive picture of a man in tight jeans, complete with a fully working zipper that opened to reveal a pair of underwear. Really? Yep. Owing to the damage caused by the zipper to the vinyl disc and the expense in producing the unusual cover, later reissues featured just the outer photograph of the jeans. So they got this big, like, fly zipper. Mm-hmm. I don't know, here. And imagine a disc underneath that, a record. And then imagine you've got a stack of, like, a hundred of them. Yeah. You're good. Every single record is going to be warped. Uh, Liam, my good friend Liam. Shout out to you, Liam, if you're listening, but I doubt He's it. He's not. I love you. Um, he could be. He had a, a John Mark McMillan LP that was warped in a hot car ride and a hot car trip like from the time he bought it at the show to when they got home I think they were in, they saw him in Florida or something and it, it, I can't remember what he said the record was sitting on but it was a very thin like it could be it could be a coin mm -hmm. it could be a quarter that warps a vinyl record like that especially given conditions like heat so when you got a stack of them like that all that weight and who knows where they're being shipped to and you got these zippers in them I'd never heard that. <laughs> and a fully working, uh, like a fully working fly and everything. So yeah, but it would be kind of interesting to own one of those just for the esoterica. But I'm sure that it's probably quick. I'm sure that it's very collectible and incredibly expensive. So you want me to do my review first? Is that I correct? can do mine. It doesn't matter. What do you want? I don't care. We're at a standstill. This is burning time. What do we do? I'll go. Rochambeau. Because mine. Yeah. Okay. Best one out of one. Okay. Okay, does that mean I go or you? You go. <laughs> I know. I'm just messing with you. Uh, okay. This album this album differs in like every way for the Beatles album. It's really amazing. It is you can really understand amazing. how you had these two different camps of music fans. Yeah, I, and I, I totally understand it. I mean, I don't think that you have to be one or the other. I did enjoy a lot of the songs on the Beatles record on Abbey Road, but I wouldn't say I necessarily enjoyed it as a record. But this is definitely a different story for me right out of the gate you get a very playful spontaneous kind of vibe from the rolling stones yeah. and from their performances this this music sounds very live whereas the uh, the beatles whereas abbey road sounds very very recorded and that's mm -hmm. part of its appeal like the recordings of abbey road are beautifully done and they're crystalline and very uh, sweet and clear and these are not like you said the production of this album uh, sounds like it just smoked a pack and uh, and that you know might be good it might be bad but I just can't get over this spontaneity and this playful vibe that hits you right out of the gate because it's so rock and roll it's at the very center of what it is to be rock and roll spontaneous and and uh, electric uh, there's absolutely nothing flashy on this album anywhere uh, nothing in terms of song structure in terms of musicianship certainly not in terms of like Mick Jagger's vocal performance uh, I mean the guy belts it but his belt is is different somehow he doesn't really alter his he doesn't have a big range or he doesn't have a range that really becomes like apparent he never he goes into falsetto a little bit in some songs. I've heard emotional rescue. Even <laughs> even his falsetto doesn't really sound higher than his normal register. No, I, I, know what I you mean. can't really explain it. 
so there's there's nothing flashy, but you've got rock pun intended solid pop gold in terms of these songs, in terms of their structures, in terms of how catchy they are, and the old Tom Petty adage of don't bore us, give us the chorus comes in to play in almost every track. The chorus hits right when you feel like it ought to. Uh, They double down on the chorus right when you want them to because it's, you know, a phenomenal line or a phenomenal melody or whatever. Uh... The the vocals themselves are way less melodic when you listen to the Stones than they are on the Beatles, where you can hum the vocal melodies and it sounds like a beautiful piece of music. Uh-huh. Not so with Mick Jagger at all. He's much more shouty and just live sounding. Just the way he writes a song is a lot more, I guess, conversational right. or actorly, thespian than the Beatles, which is very, very musical in their intent. This is neither good nor bad at all. It just falls into the camp of personal preference. You know, and I could see the That's Beatles... That's a theme with these albums in general. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, very, very signature guitar tones, very Rolling Stones guitar tones, very rough, jagged, kind of fizzy and lo-fi Um you could, you know, they might sound kind of tinny or kind of uh, harsh to some people, but this is part of Keith Richards' very adamant philosophy. For those of you who don't know, you know, guitars have uh, six strings. Um, I don't, I don't say that to, you know, sound like I'm speaking to children, but you know, it's, some people genuinely might not know. Guitars tend to have six strings. Uh, Keith Richards removed the string that holds the lowest notes, the bassiest string. He he removed that from like all of his guitars because he felt like that was the bass's territory. He wanted the bass to have its own sonic sphere and his guitar to occupy a different space. And I feel like that carries over into these trebly guitar tones. He's just trying to widen their sonic footprint mm-hmm. and I can I can understand that uh, I was really surprised by some of the things dovetailing from the guitar thing I was surprised by some of the proficient guitar playing mm-hmm. some of the guitar soloing some really tasty blues solos that I really truly did not expect when I think of the Stones guitar solos I think of Sympathy for the Devil Yeah, which is potentially one of my favorite solos of all time but like proficient, it is not. Yeah, it's it's great. It's genius. It's and just an attack on your ears. Yeah, and it's very. But it's yeah, it's not flashy at all. There's not like really quick, sustained scales ripping up and down Stevie Ray Vaughan style mm-hmm. on the fretboard. You just don't have that. So to hear a bit of that was actually kind of surprising to me. To go, oh wow, you know these guys can play. Similar to the surprise I I felt when. There was some of that more prog rock stuff in the Beatles. Just really w- seemed kind of against type, but it worked. For both of them, it worked. And uh, I was also really surprised by the emotional depth of some of the lyrics on this album. And some of the songs' themes like Sister Morphine, which is just about like this down-and-out uh, kind of almost street urchin and their, their uh, hatred for their own drug addiction. Uh, as well as, you know, 
like really all almost all the songs on this album i think lyrically are really really well crafted there's some corny moments of course some campy moments but that's kind of to be expected uh the only song i think might be out of place is dead flowers it just kind of comes in to the album at a weird angle it's a very strong country vibe song uh seven dead flowers in the mail but it's such a it's such a good song that i don't at all begrudge its presence like i i i uh was compiling my notes i popped that song on just because i like it so much i should also say i think that this album which comes in with 10 tracks 10 tracks yeah man is it paced nicely man does it have a good track listing and a great flow from song to song and you can really you really get the sense that this album was made when people listen through from start to finish Mm -hmm. listen through their albums from start to finish and there's just a deftness to how the songs are positioned that i really enjoyed i could totally see people not liking the track you've got to move which is incredibly incredibly bluesy and maybe a little drony oh excuse me but as a buffer between two of the heavier songs and it clocks in at two and a half minutes and it has a nice build to it as well with this big booming drum coming in and gang vocals and stuff i still actually really really like that song so on like uh, i really really enjoyed this album very well paced great songwriting very infectious and uh, it really has something something for you you know in any mood there's real great rock and roll in brown sugar and one of the songs that's called the b word which i pretty much just said by saying the b word uh but this is a family podcast and uh then you've got songs like dead flowers wild horses and moonlight mile that are really mellow but really soulful and still have a great persona to them uh this is a this is a very very good album in my books with almost no fat on the bone no no fat on the meat there's yeah no meat on the bones bad just no fat would yeah be. very lean yeah <laughs> i wrote in my review here sticky fingers is leaner and meaner than abbey road <laughs> <laughs> we're so cool we're such brothers yeah, that's like, my five softly next to the mic. I actually wrote here in my intro basically what you just said. Instead of 17 tracks, we get 10, and they rip hard. This album is so much tighter than Abbey Road in terms of pacing that it's not even funny. And perhaps that's the fundamental difference between the two. Abbey Road is like relaxed, it's floaty, it's chill. But I wrote here, and I really I wrote this and went, huh. The Sticky Fingers pushes you along at a breakneck pace with shrieking solos heralding your arrival to new planes of musical awesomeness. Because that, yeah. that is how the album works. Yeah. Is it's like, the Beatles is like, you're on this inner tube. In this, <laughs> you're in, in the, this, la- the lazy yeah, river. <laughs> in the lazy river and you're floating down. And then... Listening to Harry Krishna. <laughs> yeah. And then the Rolling Stones is just like, there's somebody like at your back just like pushing you into like the mosh pit and then you're just like, ah... 
and despite you never the fact stop. that it's really not like by no, today's not. standards, it's not heavy. At it's all. not heavy, but it's energetic. Yeah, and very. it just it never stops moving. Yeah, um, and I think that that's like its biggest charm. Yeah, and this really is a tale of two disparate albums, and neither one can be a clear winner, even though I have a winner. Like we already touched on, the production is appealing. I don't know if I would like this album more or less if it had Abbey Road-style production. I'm not sure. But what I do know is that Abbey Road's is empirically much better, much more timeless. And there would be a way to produce an album like the Rolling Stones now that would still have that grungy sound, that would sound better, a la 68. That would be yeah, my analog. I mean, for... You take away that really gritty soundscape of the Rolling Stones, particularly on this album, since it's the one we're talking about, and you just you do lose some of that energy. I know, and that's what I'm saying. I'm conflicted, mm-hmm. and I don't want to dock too many marks off it for that. But at the same time, the Beatles is much more impressive and much cleaner, and both both work yeah for the exactly. good of their albums' collective alchemy. Exactly. And now on to probably the thing that forever I've been kind of aware with with Rolling Stones, and I just don't understand it. Um, the guitar is good. Like you said, there are some solos that, that are better than I'd expected, and Charlie yeah. Watts has some sweet fills, no doubt about it. But none of them are really exceptional musicians. Like, they're pretty good, but none of them are amazing The writing. Again, like you said, there are some moments where you're like, oh, this is, you know, this is very interesting. The writing's not amazing. Mick Jagger, really, really. I think at hmm. times, at times it's like, oh, this is cool, but it's really? no, it's no Bahamas, it's no National, not I, even close. Well, but you're you're comparing a couple different, like, um, you know, you could also compare th- this to Leonard Cohen, but it wouldn't be a fair comparison. I haven't finished yet. Okay, okay. And likewise, Mick Jagger is really not a fantastic singer. But at the same time, when you have the Rolling Stones, it comes together and it works so much better than it should in every way. In <laughs> there that, it is. Oh, thank like, goodness. The guitar is perfect. The drums, like, the drums ride this fine line. If they were too good, somehow it wouldn't be as good. And if the writing was much more poetic and artsy, it would be so weird and so out of place. And this writing style has really defined what it means to write rock and roll and there is some real poetry in those lyrics i will say and i guess i'm just saying that after all these years of listening to the stones i still don't understand what it is that makes it so good because it's not one individual thing it's the band together as they were um and to me that is an almost unstoppable force. When you have an album that's so good based off of something intangible, it's something that could not be replicated by getting together another group of skilled musicians. It just couldn't happen. You couldn't make a Rolling Stones cover band that sounded just as good. Yeah, that that is true. I mean, like for just to draw a quick parallel that I think most people will understand, Van Halen. Mm -hmm. You get... Any any band of really competent, rock solid, uh, like drummer, bassist, and singer, and then you get a phenomenally good guitarist, you've got Van Halen. Yeah. 
you cannot emulate this kind of weird alchemical power of the Rolling Stones. That's exactly right. Unless you have it. Mm -hmm. And nobody knows how you get it. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) And certainly the Beatles has a sort of cohesion that's uniquely theirs as well. But for the Stones, I think they define what it means to be a cohesive band in my mind. Yeah. Um, And that's something that, like I said, is very difficult to overcome if you're thinking about it as a competition between the Beatles and the Stones. And then, I mean, the final piece of the puzzle is something that we already discussed, which is the lengths and the uh, fat on each of the albums. And this album has virtually none. Um, the slim track list, the short runtime, and the relentless pace combine to make something that's really special. It doesn't waste your time. You don't get bored, but it doesn't feel too snippety. Yeah, you still have enough time. It's very important with a band like this for you to get in the groove and stay in the groove in yeah. every single song, right? It's not just like throwing you around all the time. And so, between between those factors, I think for me the easy winner is the Rolling Stones. But to be fair, I've been listening to the Stones for years. I just started listening to the Beatles, so who knows where we'll be in another five years? And I have a couple questions for you, if you can remember. Um, yeah. So can't you hear me knocking? Mm-hmm. What, what did you think of that track? Because that, that track goes on for seven and a quarter minutes. I mean, certainly the best testament to it is that I didn't notice. I saw that when I was looking, when I was doing my notes. I'm like, oh, seven minutes. And the track before it is almost six. But I just, oh, yeah. I didn't even notice that these were really long songs when I was listening through. Because I, I was getting worried. Jason and I were listening to these songs when we were upstairs doing dishes before we came down to record this because we live lives very similar to those of the Rolling Stones doing dishes before you know you you do what you want and uh and I was getting kind of nervous as I do as the kind of extended jam at the end of Can't You Hear Me Knocking was playing out I was going like oh he's not gonna like that but uh I didn't even notice it is really good it's actually really good uh and uh you gotta move Mm -hmm. what do you think of that song um I mean it fits super well I appreciate you know, this is like a Jason thing. Brevity is so... I just love... Like, it's a two and a half minute song. Yeah. Um, it's a great transition between the, the two opposing tracks. Yeah. And I think that's really fantastic. It's, there's something to be said about putting a short track in between two longer songs as a transition. Like, as, a, as its own thing, but also yeah. a way oh, yeah. to transition to rant between two songs that I think is really cool. Well, it's just smart track listing like who knows what order they wrote these songs in or recorded them in even but it's a smart track listing and if you're gonna do a slow kind of ponderous blues song don't you dare make it longer than two minutes 32 seconds because it will wear out its welcome real quick Mm -hmm. uh do you were there any like standout tracks for you or brown sugar is such a classic such a good good opener um, it's I, a lot of them are probably the songs I knew already, just because I have a fondness for them. Like Wild Horses again is such a good it like is a very good song. Oh, it's yeah, it just gets me every time, and it doesn't feel like a it doesn't feel like a six minute song. But no, but I mean the album is so it's hard to do standout tracks because it doesn't have a huge uh, disparity between the highs and the lows. Unlike yeah, Abbey Road. I know, right? Yeah. Yeah, I I actually I absolutely love Sister Morphine, Dead Flowers, and Moonlight Mile. Uh, <laughs> I'm just gonna bitch as well. Phenomenal, 
there's almost nothing I respect more in art than a music that or than an album that ends as strong or stronger than it starts. Moonlight Mile is for yeah. sure one of the best songs on the album, and that's fantastic. Yeah, and and a perfect closer too. But do you know you know what I mean by how Dead Flowers seems a little out of place? Yeah, I mean I only listened to it once or twice because I was listening time, to Exile yeah. on Main Street. But and do you like this album a lot more than Exile? Uh, I would. I don't know about a lot more. I like it more. Yeah. It's a stronger album, but I don't think it's night and day. Yeah, Exile on Main Street has some sweet tracks. Too. Yeah, it does. No doubt. Okay, so at the now that we've kind of come through that, I made a couple quick notes here about the uh, <laughs> Keith. <laughs> Keith Richards just popped up. Uh, not now, Keith. I'll call you back. Um, I just made a couple notes, just comparing the two albums, kind of a rapid fire sort of thing, just for fun. And you can chip in if you agree, disagree. We've covered some of this stuff already. but You go through each point and I'll tell you if I agree or disagree. Sure. Productions. Uh, the Beatles, or Abbey Road, I should say. Clean, well-produced, great guitar tones by even moderate standards. Flabby drums. Amazingly clean vocal recordings. Agree. Uh, sticky Fingers. Far, far more gritty, shrill guitars, and loud drums. Louder. Uh, Jagger's vocals sound almost buried compared to Lennon and McCartney's pristine recordings. Yeah, definite agree. Covers. Now, this is one of my only knocks against Sticky Fingers. So, uh, Abbey Road, inarguably one of the most icon iconic images ever taken. It's, yeah, it's a, a phenomenal a, cover. Yeah, it's a great photograph. It's a great cover. Yeah, yeah it's fantastic. Uh, uh, oh, man, I just had a total brain for it. Sticky Fingers. Although... Their cover is iconic and kind of emblematic of the Stones' persona. I think it it really clashes with the content. Yeah, it it implies a much more like sexually charged, just album. raunchy. Yeah, sound and this than... this album is so soulful. Like I feel like yeah. the cover sells it short almost. That's true. Agree. Songwriting, Abbey Road, far more sing song, odd and scattershot, ranging from pure pop brilliance to LSD addled swamp. Yeah, definitely. Uh, sticky fingers almost uniformly excellent great leading from lyric to lyric like storytelling and that sort of thing some weak moments of camp but isn't that the very soul of rock and roll agreed performances Abbey Road completely airtight and amazing every vocal is bang on guitar and bass lines are executed with seasoned deafness truly amazing and much more complex musically than I was expecting Agreed. Are you listening to these? Yeah. I can't tell if you're just pulling answers out of you. Okay. Sticky Fingers. Far more live sounding, less complex, but the two guitars have a beautiful friendship that cannot be distilled easily in spoken words. I agree. I mean, the production, yeah. In my mind, the production for this Abbey Road per, is... This isn't production, though. This is performance. Performance. Oh, okay. Oh. Yeah. The the way the guitars and the Stones music wind together and get tangled up mm-hmm. is like really it's part of what makes the band yeah. so great, I think. Absolutely. Okay. Another marathon episode. I don't know, like let us know if you if you like these, if you don't. Also Can we do another uh episode code? Because it's been a few episodes since we did that. Uh sure. If, if you have heard it um, if you if you've listened to this to this point and you feel like dropping us a line, um, just let us know 
Stanley grabbed my grapefruit. There is actually one thing that I think that we should definitely do, though, before we end here. And uh, I do apologize that we're going on for so long. But then again, if you're listening to this, you didn't have to. Congratulations. You, know, you made your bed. Now you got to lay in it. So we have some Good Ship Brothership mail from Harrison T. Owens. One of our staunch loyal listeners. Poor Harrison, we're burying this an hour and twenty minutes. I in. know. I'm sorry. Well, I should have. I mean, this we, this is probably the most logical place to do I some guess. kind of like interactive uh, correspondence, arguing, shouting, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, Harrison wanted to know what our uh, top albums of last year were, so he could listen to them and give us his thoughts and opinions. And so that's exactly what he did. And I've just accidentally gone to create an appointment with him i don't know why i would have to do that harrison does next tuesday work for you yes does it harrison does it <laughs> okay uh he said uh, earth tones is very good well that's good i'm really glad that you i'm relieved i am i'm honestly like i am i'm almost elated that you jason liked sticky fingers as much as you did because i was listening to it going like he will like this he has to like this like back when I thought yeah. that you were actually listening to it, not Exile. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm like the, the album's so lean, the songs are so great, and I was just really, you know, you hope somebody likes something. Yeah, of course. Because you think it's really special. You want people really to good. like the things that you like. That's like so, the, that's what this whole podcast is predicated on. <laughs> yeah. So he says, "There's tones very good. It definitely does have an interesting style and very deep lyrics. Creates an interesting vibe." There's several times when the lightness of the music almost seems at odd at odds with the lyrics. I never thought it completely broke down, but there are a few times it didn't quite work for me. Overall, very solid. And I, I think I'd, you know, that's a I'll fair allow that's a fair assessment. I will allow it. I don't agree that uh, the music seems at odds with the lyrics. I think that that's um, kind of pivotal. And what makes what makes so much soul music so bland for me is that the lyric they're never singing about anything important or emotionally resonant yeah uh it's the double it's the one-two punch of excellent music and emotional resonance that always gets me uh and uh then the other album he let us know about was boarding house reach by jack white Boarding House Reach was a pretty solid no for me, <laughs> says Harrison. I enjoy Jack White, and I really wanted to like the album. I liked a few of the songs, especially when that fuzzy guitar kicks in. Mm. Like So like all the time? <laughs> mm. No, not all the time. Ah, I love that. But as a whole, I thought the album ranged from underwhelming to terrible. <laughs> the incessant beeping and hyper-misophoniac made it entirely unlistenable for me. A lot of the other tracks felt meandering and never get anywhere. Then there's songs like Corporation that was that was musically pretty good, but the lyrics are a jumbled mess of Jack White not quite making a point. That's a that's a good way to say it. It is that's a pretty well said. pretty good way to say it. Unfortunately, I still love that song. Overall, the album gave me the impression that Jack White was searching for a sound he couldn't quite find, and I think that that is definitely true. He searched for a fa- sound and he didn't quite find it, but I just liked the fact that he was searching again. Now, and I think I said this to Harrison. Um, there are parts of the album of, of Boarding House Reach that I really enjoyed, but overall I totally agree with him that it's like, um, 
it's like Jack, I feel like a lot of times he needs somebody's help to really get where he wants to go. Um, and obviously I can't see into his inner his his inner mind, but it seems like he just was so close and he missed the mark. Like he always said with White Stripes and just his music in general, he always claimed that his limitation were what his limitations were what made him the most creative. And that's true of a lot of artists and I think pretty much universally all artists even if they don't think so the limitations that you experience are helpful Mm -hmm. to you and uh, I just think that Jack White doesn't limit himself very much anymore Uh, and I actually think Boarding House Reach was a slight return to that limitation just in terms of a smaller band and a bit more of a focused sound than his previous albums have had but it's a far cry from the return to a two-piece band with, you know, a drummer who's less than prolific. Honestly, I would I would love to see Jack White do an album that's just him with an acoustic guitar. I yeah, would, just, I would just love to see what he, I would love to see what he would come up with. That would be the best Jack White album in many years. I absolutely guarantee you. Let's get him on the phone and say what's up. He did do an album of acoustic covers and stuff. I'm talking like just him sitting there with an acoustic. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's... But now that you're concept. saying that, that's sounding kind of familiar. Anyway, so thank you so much for your uh, for your uh, input and cooperation. Have you seen. checked the mailbox recently? Uh, nope, I haven't checked that in a long, 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 long time. Let's check that just in case. Um, I guess we might as well. Mightn't we? We can always Oops. say just say goodbye. Oh, no. Oh, they're oh, signed out. I have no idea what the password for this is. Oh, 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 wow, that's long. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we should change that. Yeah, we really should. To, like, brothership123. <laughs> Don't hack our email. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome if we just had a publicly available uh, email account? Anyone can That'd sign. That'd be really weird. Anyone can sign to the brothership, brothership email. But, yeah, please also, now that we're talking about the email address for the first time in, like, six episodes... If you have a if you have input and you don't have Facebook, Instagram uh, or Instagram, uh, you can send it to uh, to goodshipbrothership at gmail We do have an unread email from Instagram. Yeah, username changed on Instagram. Okay, well that's peachy. Uh, we've got okay. like absolutely no emails, so that's kind of a relief. But it is thegoodshipbrothership at gmail If you feel the need to drop us a line, but as we previously stated, we also have uh, Instagram and Facebook presences, and if you message us there, we will see it immediately, and we'll probably argue with you to your face. So, thank you so much for listening. Uh, this was this was a really fun episode to do. Uh, we might do some other verses uh, later on. We might even do recurring Beatles Stone series from time to time, and and drop in on them throughout the ages. And, uh, yeah, because they were contemporaries, very contemporary. I just want to make one final note that right now our Beatles versus Stones poll is two for Beatles and zero for Rolling Stones. But, I mean, I just posted it, like, midway through the episode. So Hmm. we'll see where that lands. Okay. Until next time, yeet on your feet if you want them to smell sweet. Bye. I've been Grant and that's been Jason. Not that that matters at this point.